The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We're going to read um, the uh, eight verses that we've been sort of settled in on for a few weeks. These last two chapters of the Bible describe for us what we call the eternal state. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we spent quite a bit of time on the um, really the first four verses, and we're, we're at that last phrase, that last clause in verse 4, when it says, the first things have passed away. And this promise, like so many of these promises in, um, in Revelation 21 and 22, go back to the book of Isaiah. And as we read these words, the first things have passed away. The first things are the things that are marked by tears and by death and by mourning and crying and pain. And so... When John says the first things have passed away, what he's saying is that there is a definitive dissolution of this fallen, sin-cursed, corrupt world. That statement, the first things have passed away, is a definitive statement that sin and death have been dissolved, undone, reversed forever. And this whole entire world, in fact, this whole entire cosmos will be cleansed and refined and purified by fire. And it is, it is in that context of the first things having passed away that then the one who sits on the throne, verse 5, says, Behold, I'm making all things new. There's a, a wonderful uh, song by Stephen 
Curtis Chapman called uh, Glorious Unfolding. And um, actually watching the video is, is, uh, is a very moving experience. And Stephen Curtis Chapman, who of course is familiar with the tears and the pain of death, writes these words, and every time I, every time I hear, first things have passed away, behold, I'm making all things new, I think of these words. We were made to run through fields of forever, singing songs to our Savior and King. So let us remember this life we're living is just the beginning of the beginning. And so there's coming a time where all of the old things, all of the things that mark this age in Adam and law and sin and death will be done. And the one who sits on the throne will make all things new. Again, that promise is seen in Isaiah chapter 48. It's seen in Isaiah chapter 66. But what's important to understand in that phrase, um, behold, I'm making all things new. One, One writer captures it like this. He says, the syntax, that's the way the grammar works, of 21.5 signals that God is not simply making new things to replace the old, but he's making all things to be new. And so again, just to reiterate, God is not in the business of creating something, having it be a failure, throwing it away, and then starting all over again. He's taking that which is which uh, is the first creation, and he is recreating it anew, and it is going to be absolutely glorious. Another writer says the new creation is transformative and not a matter of destruction followed by replacement. And so we sing, and um, I hope we sing it. I know we'll sing it New Year's Eve, but we sing in... um, Oh, what's the name of that uh, hymn that's um, to the tune of um, uh, All Lang Syne, All Glory Be to Christ. We sing this, this line in there, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Okay. And so when, when, does, when does that making all things new even even start, well, it actually starts in this present age. It's already started. And you say, well, how is it started? I mean, the, the world is still corrupt. There's still all kinds of sin and so forth. And the reality is that the beginning of making all things new begins with the death and the resurrection, ascension and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually, by virtue of his resurrection, inaugurates the new creation so that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And so when I hear about our our brother who is... uh, Truly, a, a transformed man, right? So you think of of this 
incredible radical transformation that happens. How does it happen? It happens by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no transformation apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The transformation that the death and resurrection of Jesus brings is the transformation, first of all, of what we read tonight from Psalm 103. Our sins, he's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. So there's no such thing as making all things new without first the forgiveness of sins. And so it is through the death of Jesus that he begins making all things new. But then it is through resurrection in which he conquers death. And he conquers really this present evil age. He conquers all of the darkness of this, of the first world, if you will, the first creation. And it is by virtue of being raised up from the dead, conquering death, conquering the grave and actually being enthroned to the right hand of God that he is now the Lord of a new creation so that every single time his Holy Spirit comes and does a work in somebody's heart and takes out that heart of stone and puts in its put in its place a heart of flesh every time his spirit who has come in his fullness by virtue of resurrection and exaltation, every time his spirit comes and actually creates somebody new, we call it being born again, regenerated, that is actually not just simply some sort of personal ontological transformation. It is that, but it's more. It is the the age to come, the new creation invading this present age so that we become transformed people of the future right now. That's awesome. So he's making all things new. When did that start? When the the tomb was empty. And so here's this beautiful picture, and he's already making everything new, but what a day it's going to be when he actually consummates the newness of all things, right? And so, so you can think about it, you can think about it in, in personal terms and you can think about it in cosmic terms. So, is, is uh, am, am I a new creation? The answer is yes. Have I been made new? The answer is yes. Is there coming a day I will be made new? The answer is yes. In other words, the newness which he began will be consummated so that we will be new people in the fullness of our redeemed humanity. By the way, the newness that he consummates for us on a personal level doesn't make us anything other than human. You're going to be a human being forever. The newness consummated simply means that you'll be the human being that God originally designed you to be forever. Isn't it good to know that humanity, right? human nature, is good. God created it good. 
Sin has spoiled it. Sin has corrupted it. Sin has brought death and misery. And what God is going to do is he is going to cause the, 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 the power of his spirit from his resurrected son to actually come and to raise our humanity to what we have always in, been intended to be. Okay? And so you're always going to be finite. Okay? Ne- never, there's never a time where you're going to be infinite. Okay? You'll be immortal, but you'll still be finite. You will always be a creature, always. But that's what God made you to be. So in the newness of what God does, you end up just being what God intended you to be, which is ultimately to be conformed to the image, not of the first Adam, but of the last Adam. Okay? So think about it then cosmically, right? So what's going on in this present world? Well, you know, second law of thermodynamics, death and decay. Death and decay comes into this world because of, of sin, and this world is marked by death, but even this world itself is going to experience a newness and a redemption that is going to, in a sense, be compatible with what God makes his children to be forever. In other words, there's going to be this remarkable compatibility between the redeemed and glorified new humanity and a redeemed, glorified new earth. God is going to suit our environment to us. Absolutely wonderful. So, when he says, making all things new, then he turns around, and, and we've seen this before, right? He says, right, for these words are faithful and true. We see that all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 14. We see it in Isaiah 65. And so what, uh, what, is, uh, what does he mean? These words are faithful and true. Well, by the way, Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness, Right? But the words of God, the promises of God are faithful. That is, they're steadfast, they're reliable, and his promises are true. That is, they are without error, cannot lead us astray, absolutely true without fail, right? So you might say to yourself, you know, you might think, he's going to make everything new. This sounds, this sounds too good to be true, and, and John says, you know what? I'm going to anticipate that you think this is too good to be true. And so I'm going to remind you, God's words, God's promises are faithful and true. You and I should be more certain of the faithfulness and reliability and truthfulness of God's word. We should be more sure about that than we are even of our own existence. We should be more sure about that than we are that the sun's going to come up tomorrow, right? And so here is this, this magnificent statement. The one who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new, right? For these words are faithful and true. You can bank on them. They are the bedrock of your faith. You can stand firm on them. And then, you ready? 
Then he said to me, it is done. Now, I have to tell you that this little phrase, it is done, captured my attention this morning. What does it mean it's done? Well, of course it means um, everything is consummated. Of course it means the accomplishment of the new creation. But out of, out of curiosity, and my curiosity often runs in this direction, I ask myself, I wonder if Jonathan Edwards ever preached a sermon on this text. And so I go to the Jonathan Edwards Uh, center at Yale University, and I then go up to sermons, and then I pick canonical, not chronological, and lo and behold, I find out that Edwards did preach on this text in December of 1744. And in fact, here's his text, and he said unto me, it is done. That's his whole text. Now, You know I'm going to share it with you now, right? So Edwards, of course, gives the doctrine, right? That's, he says, there's a time coming when God's grand design in all his various works and dispensations from age to age will be completed and his end fully obtained. And then, of course, Edwards has inquiry, that is question. What is this one great design that God has in view in all of his works and all of his dispensations? Answer, tis to present to his son a spouse in perfect glory from amongst sinful, miserable mankind, blessing all that comply with his will in this matter and destroying all his enemies that oppose it, and so to communicate and glorify himself through Jesus Christ, the God-man. He goes, this I take to be the great design of the work of creation and the work of providence. In other words, everything, everything that God is doing from the very beginning of time, he is actually, in, in, and Edwards loves this uh, imagery of, of a river, and you have all of these tributaries that feed into the river, and so you have all of these, um, in a sense, these different plans, different dispensations, different works, right? But Edwards says at the end of the day, they all flow into the same river, and here is, here is where that river is going. God is moving everything in this whole world to this consummation to where he takes a bride for his son and that bride is nothing less than the redemption of his own elect from the miserable, sinful lot of humanity. He makes them clean, he makes them pure, he presents them then to his son and then it is through his son that God gets all of the glory for everything that he has done. Now, um, this is why you should read Jonathan Edwards, because he makes your heart sore. 
So Edwards, and this isn't just particular to this sermon, Edwards says God's always has, has two great aims in mind. One is the idea of communication, and by that he doesn't mean talking. He means actually by communicating uh, himself, okay, to the creature. And then the second is glorification. So God communicates himself to the creation in order that he be glorified in the creation. In other words, he creates not out of need. He creates out of overflow and abundance. And because he is a God who communicates, he actually uh, creates so that he can um, have people that share in what he communicates. And the whole reason that he does that is so that they in turn would glorify him. And so he creates us, communicates his grace, his mercy, his love to us in Jesus Christ so that we in turn glorify him. And Edward says the very pinnacle of that is when Christ is wed forever together with his bride. Okay? Absolutely wonderful. Then he says this. He says, oftentimes things seem to go backwards and not forwards. In, in other words, he's, he's dealing with the very simple um, observation and maybe even objection that if this is what God is doing, if everything's working towards that goal, you know, frankly, it just seems like not everything's working towards that goal. And in fact, sometimes it seems like Things are working contrary to that goal. And sometimes it seems like God's not moving things forward, but things are moving backwards. And so Edward says, oftentimes things seem to go backwards and not forwards. And to human appearance, they seem further off from the accomplishment of these things that the scripture has revealed that must be accomplished in order to do it. And then he says, oftentimes the devil seems to prevail exceedingly. And for a time together, the end appears further off than many ages before. So chronologically, you're closer to the end, but it may seem that you're actually farther from the end than those who came before you. He says, so that oftentimes the appearance of things is so dark that it looks as those, it looks as though those great things never will come to pass. But yet, there is a time coming wherein this great design will be completed. The scheme finished, the work done, and it will be proclaimed as it is in this text. It is done. And so that little phrase, it is done. All of God's purposes, all of God's plans, God's grand design will come to accomplishment one day. And there will be a declaration. It is done. 
it is done sounds like something else that we know from Scripture, doesn't it? Sounds like it is finished, right? You could think of it this way. When Jesus cries out, it is finished in John 19, 31. He's set in motion everything that needs to happen for that final declaration. It is done. And so Edwards, just one more short quote from Edwards. He says, in the application, he says, see to it that with respect to a saving work of the Spirit of God in your soul, it may truly be said, it is done. So, just I mean, this is this this is the way that that um, that the truth of God in Scripture should work. It is like just blowing our preconceived categories apart. And as we come to this, it's like infinite glory is being added to infinite glory. You do realize that you can't add infinity to infinity, right? But, but in a sense, you've got to talk like that. And so you've got this infinite glory of this new creation and added to it the infinite glory of the consummation of the plan of God. And now add to it that the one who's seated on the throne actually says this, I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. You, you do understand that there's no, um, there's no use of the titles of God in, in a willy-nilly fashion, right? In other words, the one who's seated on the throne identifies himself as the Alpha Omega beginning and end for a very specific purpose. So have we seen this before in the book of Revelation? Alpha Omega. Yeah. So not to wear you out with details, but it's used in 1.8 of God. It's used in 1.17 of Christ. It's used in 2.8 of Christ. It's used in 21.6, our text, of God. And it will be used one more time in chapter 23 and verse 13 of Christ. And that very expression, alpha, omega, and or beginning and end, is rooted in Isaiah 41, 44, and 48, where Yahweh says, I am literally the Aleph and the Tau. The first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I am the beginning and the end, says Yahweh. So you you don't have to actually have much theological imagination to put this together, right? If Yahweh says in Isaiah 41, 44, and 46, I am Yahweh, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and then in the book of Revelation, God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Christ says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Christ says, I'm the Alpha Omega. God says, I'm the Alpha Omega. And then Christ says, the Al- I'm the Alpha and Omega. It doesn't take much imagination to conclude that Jesus Christ is able to say he's the Alpha and the Omega because he's God. 
It's actually a remarkable declaration when you think of it that Jesus is identified as the very one who is the Alpha, the Omega, the Aleph, and the Tau, the beginning and the end, because Jesus Christ himself is, in fact, the Lord and creator of all history. That's the significance, by the way, of beginning and end. Richard Bauckham, he's the origin and he's the goal of all history. And so you can think of it this way. So here's the father who's the, be- uh, the, the, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and the son who's the beginning and the end and the first and the last. And they sit on a throne and they are the only ones that can say it is done. They started it, and they finish it. Absolutely majestic title for the one who sits on the throne. Then, so you have, you have, you have two, in, in Scripture, you've got, you've got two... Um, aspects, two perspectives um, about God. One is that God is absolutely transcendent, right? And by transcendent, what would, what would I mean? He's beyond us. What's that? Yeah, other than is really good, right? Because other than, it looks like this, creator, Line creation, okay? <laughs> okay. The, the creator is not down and, and melding with the creation. There is a total holy other than-ness when we talk about transcendence. What are some other words that you would think of when you come to the idea of transcendence? Majesty? Exaltation, words of Isaiah, he's high and lifted up, holy. By the way, the very, the very essence of holy is, is not just moral purity, it's holy other than-ness. Okay. So Tozer said it years ago, the archangel and the grasshopper have more in common than the archangel and God. Right? Because you got that line. And of course, today, the, we, we don't really care about that line. And we want the creature to be up here, right? <laughs> but here's the reality. Is the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the exaltation of God, the majesty of God. And so if there's anything that would compel the fear of the Lord, what would it be? His transcendence. In other words, there is something about this infinite, eternal, majestic, transcendent, exalted, holy God that makes you painfully aware that that you're not like him. And if you don't believe that, read Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I am undone. 
disintegrated. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have just seen the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. Lord of hosts, King of glory, transcendence. So the transcendence of God is not meant to give you warm, cuddly feelings. Transcendence of God is designed to absolutely humble you to the dust to make you realize that this God with whom you have to do is not like you. Right? If there's anything that is that is the bane of of the modern church world, it's this, is that we've, we've lost a sense of divine transcendence. We've lost a sense of awe-inspiring holiness. We've lost the sense of the very word awesome. By the way, you know what the old word for awesome was? Awful. Okay. Not awful as in like butternut squash, <laughs> but awful as in full of awe. Okay. We've lost that. But here's the amazing thing. Right? So, so is Alpha Omega beginning and end, is that, uh, are, are, is that a title of transcendence? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But notice the very next thing that's stated after this exaltation of the transcendent eternal God. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we don't even, we're we're not even like wowed or awed anymore because we just, we're we're so familiar with it. So here's, here's the way that you're supposed to read this verse. The one who is on the throne, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has brought all of his grand design to accomplishment and is able to say sovereignly and triumphantly, it is done, is also the one who condescends in such a way that he says, and to the one who's thirsty. You see that? It's not just that God is transcendent. He's also imminent. He's also near us. So, so which, which one do you like better? <laughs> well, it's not a matter of liking one better. Well, which one should control the other one? It's not a matter of which one controls the other one. It's actually a matter of actually just understanding that the God of the Bible is both. And I don't have to, I don't have to, um, I don't have to diminish his nearness to me as the one who's thirsty by, um, by somehow um, saying, well, it's just, uh, it's just in, in a sense, that's just the way God represents himself. He's obviously so transcendent that he can't actually be near me. That's nonsense. He's both. 
And so on the one hand, when you read to the one who, who is thirsty, so, so you go from this cosmic origin Lord of all of history now to this to the one I will give, to the one who thirsts, I'll give from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now you move to this marvelous nearness and transcendence and both of them come together. And so the one who sits on the throne is also the one who quenches your soul thirst. And the one who is the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end is also the one who actually says to you, I will give you of the, of the water of the springs of life without cost. In other words, free. It's Isaiah 55, right? Come and buy um, uh, uh, milk and, um, and, and what else, Daniel? Wine, okay. Milk. Is it really wine? Okay. Okay, so come and buy milk and grape juice without, no. <laughs> buy without cost, without money. In other words, it's valuable, it's not cheap, but God's going to sell it to you for nothing. That's salvation. Did you just look it up? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so some of you be happy about that. <clears throat> Wine without cost. But here's the beautiful thing, is that he draws near to us in such a way that he satisfies our soul's deepest desire And he does it for me. And he does it for you. Have you ever wondered, like if you're praying, you you ever think, oh, you know, all this stuff going on in Russia and over in Israel, I'm sure God's too busy. (laughs) Right? You ever think that God's got bigger fish to fry than, than me? sitting in my living room by myself, praying. And, and here's, here's the beautiful thing, is that just as sure as God is ruler of the nations and transcendent over all of his creation, he's also the God who's right there with you. For real. So I've, I've shared this before, but years ago there was this uh, video that was going around um, I forget what it's called. It was Lou Giglio, How Great Is Our God, or something like that. Anybody see it? Um, and what he does is he, he talks about how absolutely massive, how vast the universe is. And he compares all the planets, right? You see this? And, of course, Earth is, like, hardly the biggest, right? It's, like, down the line. And I remember watching it, and everybody was telling me how great it was, and and um, I was I was struck on the one hand with how immense God is, right? Incredible transcendence. I mean, He's over like galaxies we don't even know about. 
And then I started to get depressed. I'm serious. I start thinking, if God is that immense, if God is that transcendent, if, if God, we just put it in this, if God's that big, I'm, I'm actually not even a speck on a speck. I'm smaller than that, and so are you. And it bugged me. I mean, it was like shaking me. And then I went to Isaiah 57, 15, where God is the high and exalted one who inhabits eternity. He's high, he's holy. But he's also near the contrite and the brokenhearted. One of the things about God that is, that is so stunning may not necessarily be his bigness, but his nearness. That's amazing. He's got what, like seven and three quarters billion people on this planet, right? And untold, untold billions and billions of people who have died, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to stop and to think that he is actually near and personal with each one. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. And so don't miss this connection between the one who's on the throne, Alpha and Omega, who turns around and he says, I'm going to give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Which, of course, what is that? that well, it's nothing less than salvation. The fullness of his salvation, it's, it's, it's language that comes to us from Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 55. It's language that comes to us from John 4. Woman at the well, from John 7, last day of the great feast, right? And so the one who believes in me, what's going to happen from his innermost being is going to flow rivers of living water. His presence, his power, his nearness in the lives of his people that he comes to and meets their deepest needs. You, you do understand that that's, that's the way it works. And that, that's, that's Edward's whole point is, is on the idea of communication. God, God's not a receiver. He's a giver. Right? So what, what does he need from you anyway? What does he need from you? He needs it? Nothing. By the way, if you have a God that needs to be worshipped, you've got a problem. Okay? If you've got a God that needs anything, you've got a problem. Right? So he is not a God to be served with human hands, Acts 17, 20, as if he needed anything. Doesn't need anything at all. So he goes to the woman at the well. 
what she have to offer him? Absolutely nothing. And yet, what does he do for her? Hey, go call your husband. Yeah, it's not a good idea. I don't really have a husband. Oh, you're right. You've had five, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. Gulp. I perceive, sir, you are a prophet. (laughs) So since you're a prophet, let's talk about uh, the stuff that really matters. So the Jews say you got to worship in Jerusalem, but us Samaritans say that you can worship at Mount Gerizim. And uh, so, hey, let's, let's engage in a little discussion since you've exposed me and I'm ready to chew my arm off as if I'm caught in a trap. Let's talk about the worship wars between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus says, don't you know, an hour is coming and is right now when the Father is going to be looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And it won't be in Jerusalem and it won't be in Mount Gerizim because God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What's she adding to this? Nothing except ignorance and sin. That's not really a contribution, you know. And what does Jesus tell her? You come to this well because this is where the water is, but I'm going to tell you that if if you come to me, you'll never, ever thirst again. You ever known anybody married five times and who was living with somebody? Let's just say you wouldn't want them teaching kindergarten Sunday school. Right? And what does Jesus do? Comes to the least and gives of himself. That's what he does. That's what he does. And so what do we contribute? The answer is nothing. He's the giver. We're the receiver. And even when we in turn glorify him, you do understand it's with that which he's already put into us. So what he's getting back from us is not from us. It's from him. (laughs) You see how that works, right? And that's the God who sits on the throne. Now, I was hoping, just because of Sunday's sermon, that we would get to verses 7 and 8, who will and will not inherit, and talk about the promises and the threats, but we don't have time for that tonight. So, this Sunday, um, Daniel's going to preach in the morning, because his sermon will be much better than mine. And then I will preach in the afternoon. That was a joke, by the way. Anyway, no... (laughs) Uh, I'm going to preach in the afternoon on um, when the warnings don't work. What about those who who fall away? And by the way, it's relevant to 21.8. You see it? It's a threat. There's lots of threats right there in that passage. 
And so we'll, we'll pick it up next week um, after, um, after we've covered it Sunday afternoon. All right. And so what do we have to look forward to as the people of God? Here it is. It is done. Making all things new. That's what we have to look forward to. And so when life seems really sad and when life seems really hard, and by the way, misery makes time slow down, right? When you're happy, time goes by really fast, right? Which is a blessing. So the happier you are, the faster it goes. The more miserable you are, the slower it goes. When it's going slow, just remember... He's making all things new. And one day, he'll say it's done. No more tears. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. We'll see in Revelation 22, no more curse. First things, done. What a day it will be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would Encourage and strengthen our hearts with what just gloriously awaits us. Lord, it just, Father, at times it seems just simply too good to be true. But your words are faithful and true. And it will come to pass. And you will declare one day it's done. And will be forever in your presence. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us patience and endurance to wait for that day. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.